Welcome back after Easter. It was so much fun last week to see the crowds, to experience some of the enthusiasm, and to absolutely be able to focus on the greatest of all news. And that is that God loved us. And God died in our place. And that each one of us have an opportunity because of the resurrection to be able to experience abundant life and eternal life. That is amazing news. And just like any other celebration, there sometimes seems to be a lull afterwards. And, and you have this high, this experience, perhaps... You know, it's, it's something that just kind of stirred you. Say, what's next? What do I need to do in my journey? How do I stay connected with God well? How can I learn a little bit more, well, about walking with Jesus? Well, that's what we do all the rest of the year here is that we have an opportunity to come every Sunday and be able to praise our amazing God, be able to lift our hearts and our hands, so grateful for all that He's done. Some of you might be newer still to this kind of a fellowship and wonder why we stand or why we, we adore God. Well, we're all in different places and we're all in a different journey, but we're growing our understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us absolutely overwhelms us at times. Well, the Gospel of John continues to captivate me. It captivates us, in fact. It's week 24 of our series. We know that if you've been around that the Apostle John loved Jesus and wrote this gospel right before, well, he actually saw the Lord right before he died. But John had an agenda. He spent his three years with Jesus. He saw the amazing miracles that happened. He heard his words of life, and it ignited him for the rest of his days. He proclaimed this message. He encouraged those around him. And all the way to his dying breath, he wanted to make sure that people understood the good news, the gospel. It changed him. It gave him something to live for. And in John chapter 20, verse 31, we've read this verse just about every time we've had our lessons. But John had an agenda. And his agenda was this, that we would continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Rescuer, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you will have life by the power of His name. You know, each week we watch Jesus and learn from Jesus. He is Son of God, Messiah, King, Savior. And if we go back just a little bit before Palm Sunday, which, which feels like a million years ago, we were in John chapter 8. And in John chapter 7 and in John chapter 8, we see that Jesus went to this festival of weeks, or it's called Festival of Tabernacle. It is a high Jewish holiday. But he was in the temple and he was teaching, and he was just about to leave the temple. And so we're going to jump back in John chapter 8, and we're going to try to pick up where we left off. But just a reminder, Jesus was radical, a formidable individual, a most imposing personality, and yet he was not intimidating nor frightening. During this Jewish festival, he entered the temple to find people groping around in spiritual darkness. Odd. You would think there'd be people vibrant, people who are worshiping God, people that, that knew God well. But he saw they were blind and that they were thirsting for divine truth. So, 
the last few weeks before we hit our Easter season, he graciously but boldly made two statements. And each Sunday we spent time on these statements. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink because I'm going to be the only one to satisfy the thirst inside. And then he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He fearlessly spoke the truth without apology, which often put Jesus at odds with the big cheeses at the temple. Yes, there was a group of people, religious leaders that hated Jesus, men who opposed him whenever they had the opportunity. And this conflict continues this week. I'm sure if you've been reading through and been pretty faithful in our study, you're wondering, when are the Pharisees going to give up? When? Well, sorry to say, but but this story continues all the way to the end. But today, today, we're going to hear some crude remarks and hear some poor theology from these religious individuals. But Jesus stays focused. Because God so loved the world, he sent Jesus on a mission to pay our debt and to offer life to anyone who believes in his son. Sadly, the tired and the weary, the ones who scurry and the ones who come up empty were the only ones usually that responded to God's gracious gift of life. I've asked Carrie to read our scripture for us. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow up on top. But if you do, you can open up to John chapter 8 or flip open your flat screens. We're going to start reading at verse 31. John 8, verse 31. Carrie. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Anyone, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Yes, I realize that you are descendants of Abraham, and yet some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. I am telling you what I saw when I was with my father, but you are following the advice of your father. Our father is Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus replied, for if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you are trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No, you are imitating your real father. They replied, we aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. Jesus told them, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I am not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when I tell you the truth, you just naturally don't believe me. Which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? And since I am telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God, but you don't listen because you don't belong to God. The people retorted, You Samaritan devil, didn't we say all along that you were possessed by a demon? No, Jesus said, I have no demon in me. For I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And though I have no wish to glorify myself, God is going to glorify me. He is the true judge. I tell you the truth, anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. The people said, Now we know you are possessed by a demon. Even Abraham and the prophets died. But you say, Anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, If I want to glorify myself, it doesn't count, but it is my Father who will glorify me. You say he is our God, but you don't even know him. I know him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you, but I do know and obey him. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The people said, You aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. Let's pray. Father, once again, we, um, we need to hear your voice. We would love that the Holy Spirit just has unbelievable freedom here in this room. Actually, all over Lake County and all over these United States and all over our world. As Christians gather, whether in small surroundings or gigantic auditoriums, as we raise our hands and our hearts and as we open our minds to you and your teaching, would you change us from the inside, Father? Would we be salt and light everywhere we go because we are listening to you? Would we be disciples today? We thank you, dear God, for the grace you've given each one of us. And pray as we continue to dig into this passage that you would use this to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As Jesus spoke, many believed. And again, we spent a little extra time in just trying to catch us up. But if you look back at verse 30, I'd like to just read to you. Remember, he just proclaimed that he was the light of the world, and some did believe. But at the end of this section, he says, Then many who heard him say these things believed in him. So in the midst of the temple's diverse crowd, Jesus focused on these new believers. He assured them that belief is a beginning and that growth actually must follow. Yes, they believed. Yes, they heard that he was the light. Yes, they didn't want to walk in darkness anymore. They didn't. So Jesus wanted to help them in this journey. You know, the good news is this, is that Jesus always meets us where we are, but he doesn't let us stay where we're at. Faith in Christ makes one a child of God, but abiding in the word, knowing and obeying the truth, makes one a true disciple of the kingdom. So Jesus gave these new believers a pathway, and that's where we started in verses 31 In 32, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, Jesus bluntly said, True disciples remain faithful to my teachings. If you know my teachings you will know truth. And if you know truth, you will be set free. Some of you know again that I'm a pastor's kid. And sitting underneath my dad's teaching for the majority of my life, I think maybe one of his favorite words was truth. He would use that word over and over. And what's the truth here? What truth is going to transform your life today? And so in my head, it was really clear growing up that there was truth. There was something I could bank on. There was something that was critical for me to live my life. And the truth was really different at times to what the world has to offer or what different philosophies were out there. But Jesus, again, was saying, if you know and obey my words, you will experience freedom. Now, this is absolutely great news, news that seems to get diluted by the skeptics. These two verses ignite both the Pharisees and the believers just in different ways. Now, we're literally going to come back to these two verses in a moment. 
But what I'd like to do is first look at the whole dialogue so that we understand in the context how important these verses really are. We need to, first of all, clarify the they. It seems that the they are the same combatants that Jesus had been battling all along. And the, day, the they that I'm well referring to is verse 33. When all of a sudden, after he gets this great couple verses of good news for these believers, they start arguing. But we're descendants of Abraham, and it goes on from there. Now, as I look at this in our story, these unbelievers, these skeptics, these combatants, they like to fight, and they're blind. So first of all, the religious like to argue. They like to fight. They start off by just saying this, we've never been slaves to anyone. Now, honestly, either they had their heads in the sand, or they really were talking about spiritually being slaves to God. Because really they were enslaved by Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Syria and finally Rome. They had to be speaking about spiritual slavery. Yet they also didn't understand that they were slaves to the law. The people were burdened. They were burdened. Then they started calling Jesus' names. I mean, honestly, it seemed to me as you read through this passage that maybe these spiritual leaders are back in third grade. I don't know if you remember third grade, but, but in third grade, those names start getting pretty uh, volatile at times. And you often come back, oh, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Well, we all know the names do hurt you. We do. We also know sticks and stones break your bones. But really, these folks were kind of being demeaning at the moment. First of all, they shout out to Jesus, we aren't illegitimate children. I don't know if you understand that all of Jesus' life, he was looked at as an illegitimate child. Now again, there were some that believed that he was born of a virgin. There were some that understood that this was God's amazing plan. But to any normal person, any neighbor, if you see a young lady pregnant, there's only one way that could have happened. So all of his life, all of his ministry, there would be these little jabs every once in a while as being illegitimate. And then they call him a Samaritan devil. Now to us, that might not even be like a big deal. But this was a racial slur. You couldn't have been called anything worse, at least as a Jew, the bottom line. A Samaritan? Wow. These are kind of half-breeds. It was a negative kind of connotation. And devil? Well, that's never an attractive kind of uh, uh, comparison. The religious also were blind. You know, thinking that their father is God when he's really Satan, but all the way through their lives, they, well, actually reflected that Satan was their dad. You know, refusing to acknowledge Jesus as God um, recognizing that Jesus for years had been talking that he is the Messiah and that he is the Son of God. And finally, whoa, at this time when they were talking about Abraham and he just blurted out before Abraham was born, I existed. That literally, the religious flipped out at that moment. They picked up stones. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. You cannot claim that you are God. You can't. Now remember, Jesus was clear about that. He did the, the miracles of God. He spoke the words of God, and he eventually was going to be raised from the dead just really a few months later. 
But these folks did not understand any of it because of their blindness and shallowness and hard hearts. At the end of our text, Jesus mysteriously leaves. Now, I think John was making a statement here. It was the last time that Jesus literally was in the temple before, well, the last week of his life. I think this was a symbolic way that John said, you know what? There's some hard-hearted people. I'm going to leave. And the scriptures really don't tell us how, and I don't know if he had this invisible shield that God put over him, but as people stood up and took the stones ready to kill Jesus, he literally walked away because it wasn't his time. It wasn't his time to give up his life as a sacrifice for our sin. Now, in our story, Jesus moves toward believers, and this is huge, away from the hard-hearted. Jesus describes disciples and gives the new believers a direction. This is huge. Because again, if I were to even divide this crowd right now, or to ask you to put hands up, which I won't, say, how many of you want to be in the group of hard-hearted, religious, blind, angry people? Or would you like to be in the group called disciples that are responding to God? Now, my guess is the majority of you all would do the disciple piece, okay? But it's really, really clear today that um, Jesus is moving toward those who are responding. And I think it's a perfect time right after Easter. Some of us are a little bit more tender. Some of us are a little bit more excited. We recognize again this amazing message. What message does Jesus have for us today? What is he saying literally about disciples? And, And what path ought real followers of Jesus take? Let's look at that. The first thing is that true disciples are word-oriented or saturated. They're word-oriented or saturated. I have my famous jug right here. It's a very beautiful picture. All right? And we're going to pretend this is God's word. And... What Jesus literally was saying at that time is that if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you are going to let the word saturate you. That's enough. I come on a Sunday. I, I listen every once in a while to God's word. And you know what? Um, I I don't want to be a fanatic. And the truth is, well, you know, I, I did get God's word today. And really, I don't want my sponge to get too saturated because what I'm going to do, good catch. Good catch. You guys weren't too worried about that one, were you? But you know what Jesus said? Jesus said that disciples of mine are saturated by God's word. Every time that God's word is given out, every time, you're opening up, you're listening. So maybe in the morning when you get up, you have some time with God and you're reading. And maybe you have, as you're driving to work, start memorizing some verses. And maybe every Sunday, you're really good on Sundays, and and you come and you know that every time the Word of God is just going to be given out here, and you listen, you take notes, and you're so excited. And there's times that you meet, well, Sunday nights if you're in high school, or Wednesdays and you're memorizing, or, you know, sometimes you come out to vacation Bible school. And oh my word, you, you are just soaking this in. This is amazing. You're becoming saturated. Not just a few little drips. 
here or there. And, and it just is so amazing because everywhere that you go, you've got the Word of God. And it is just, it is just, it is just dripping off of you. And you look at this and you go, you know what? I know that disciples are people that love Excuse me. You're just so excited about... <laughs> that sounded terrible, didn't it? Um, you're just so <laughs> excited about God's Word. And, and what happens is that you're saturated, and all of a sudden... Just kidding. Squeezed it out. But if I left it saturated, if I did, you know what would have happened? <laughs> now it would have dripped here. It would have dripped everywhere. Everywhere you go, and this sponge goes flying, and you guys are all soaked. Because you just hung out with a sponge that was so saturated with God's Word. You know, so many people are okay with that sponge. They just are. They're okay with it. And they think, again, that following Jesus really just means, well, occasionally I'll get the Word. But true disciples are Word-oriented, or they're saturated. Their priority is spending time in the Word. They listen to God and obey His Word. They, rem they remain in His Word. In fact, Jesus addresses those who came to faith and defined true disciples as those that remain faithful to my teaching. Literally, remain in my word. The verb remain is the Greek word meno. And actually, it's a key word in the whole book of John. John uses it 40 times. If we look at all the other, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those gospel writers only use it 12 times. Menno describes a permanent relationship with God, an enduring relationship with God, an abiding faith, and an indwelling presence. The idea here is a complete commitment to Jesus' teaching. It's to be saturated with God's Word they possess the desire that the psalmist talks about in Psalm 119. I've just chosen a few word, uh, verses. But in 97, the psalmist writes this, Oh, how I love your precepts, your law. With all my heart I observe your words. Your law, your words are my delight. And the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands and hundreds of silver. Secondly, true disciples know the truth. You see, they know God's Word. God's Word is the truth, and truth gives disciples stability in life. In fact, God's Word dictates how disciples live. The difference between a disciple or a follower of Jesus and maybe well, one that is casually connected with God, is that people who are casual look at the Bible as good suggestions. Disciples look at as truth. There are four Greek words that translate no. The Greek word gnosko is used right here. Unlike all the others that could have been used, gnosko stresses understanding rather than just sensory observation. It is closely related to the Hebrew word yada, which describes the most intimate of all relationships. So when Jesus speaks out and says, true disciples know God's word. It's because they meditate on it. 
They allow it. Again, the, the word meditate is, is an agricultural word. It's a, it's a farmer's word. It's all about cows, to be quite honest. So you take the Word of God and you chew on it. And you swallow it and bring it down to stomach number one. And then you regurgitate it because that's what happens. You chew on it some more. And you get to know this. You take out more nutrients and then it goes down to another stomach and then, and then back up again and down and back. And, and by the time cows get rid of whatever they get rid of, no nutrients, nothing there. They have absolutely meditated on their hay the best they can. That is what the Scripture is talking about. You see, those who are sold out to His Word in this way know the truth. That is, they can discern the true way to live and are committed to living that way. They are. You know, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. And it's up on the screen. And the reason I'm, I'm showing you this is that the author of Hebrews was a person that was so concerned that God's people would really experience abundant living. There are so many warnings in the book of Hebrews because whoever this author is was so concerned Well, that the Hebrew Christians wouldn't get it. But he writes this. There is so much more that we would like to say about this, but it's difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. In other words, hey, when God's word is given out, you're receiving it casually, or you just choose not to listen. You've been believers so long now, you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again and again the basic things about God's Word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, those who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Now again, most of you are way past the formula stage, all right? But if you have a three-week-old, four-week-old, five-week-old, I don't care how luscious steak is. I don't. Well, maybe you can mix it up enough or whatever you want to do with it. But, but the truth is this, is that the only thing a baby can digest is mom's milk or formula. That's it. None of you would still be satisfied with that now. I cannot wait to get home for lunch today because I've got some fresh formula. I can't wait to down it. People would look at you quite odd. I've never gone to Culver's and seen formula on the menu. Not even one time. Not even once. Ridiculous. But that's what the author is saying. He's saying, you know what, those that dribble, those that, well, don't really get into God's Word, it's like your babies. You're not enjoying what God has for you. You're satisfying for formula when, I've got steak and potatoes. It's unbelievable, the difference. Unless you're a vegetarian. Then you can have Brussels sprouts, and lettuce, which is still better, I think, than formula. But obeying the truth opens your eyes to more truth. Truth is not just doctrine. It is dynamic. It changes lives, and it bears fruit. Lastly, disciples have great freedom. We have been shouting today in our worship about the freedom that God gives each one of us who are his kids. You see, the reality of believing in Jesus, obeying his word, and knowing truth brings freedom. Such freedom, though, is multifaceted and often means we have freedom from quite a few things. And let me just share a few of them. We have freedom from the bondage of Satan. We have freedom from the condemnation that God is going to give everyone that is not a follower of him. 
We have freedom from judgment. We have freedom from ignorance. We have freedom from spiritual death. And in this context, most significantly, we have freedom from sin. Say, whoa, 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 wait, wait, Pastor Rick. I, um, I kind of like sin sometimes. You know, not all the sins, but, but there are certain sins. They're, they're pretty, a lot of fun. Like, I don't think I want to have freedom from all sin, you know? I, I mean, that seems to me like, ah, oh, you know, it just will make life a little dull. But let me remind you of a few things. Sin is like a cruel taskmaster. It controls every aspect of an unbeliever's life and a person's life who is not walking with God, enslaving that person to various lusts and pleasures. But all these lusts and pleasures bring death. They're all short-term fixes. They're all things that satisfy the flesh in a quick fashion. But the consequences and the pain that follows is horrendous. You see, the only way for sinners to be released from sin's grip and the penalty to be paid for is to be united by faith with Jesus. That's why last weekend was so exciting. Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection provides deliverance. It's not just a ticket to heaven, which that's pretty cool but it's the ability to be able to live full and meaningful lives right now. It's the ability not to be a slave to the sin and the destruction. In Christ, we have died to sin's authority and mastery in our lives. Maybe someday we'll hit a study or get into a study in the book of Romans, but especially Every believer ought to understand what Romans 6 and Romans 7 and Romans 8 stands for. It's one of the three greatest chapters in all of the Bible. To be able to understand God's amazing mercy, but also the ability to be able to live not underneath the rule of sin. You see, sin is no longer our master. Instead, we are free to be able to live as servants of our God and our King. By receiving the truth about Christ, slaves are set free. So many of us struggle with this, even when we come to faith. I don't know when you came to faith, but let's just paint a picture of someone about 50 years old. And let's just say someone, maybe this someone's name is Joe. That's a good name for a 50-year-old. And he lives next door to you. And Joe, for 50 years, knows nothing but serving himself. And he makes great decisions. He's a great neighbor as far as you can see. But ultimately, he is going to live for himself. He'll make money for himself. He may be generous at times. He may be kind at times. But realistically, the whole focus of his life is him. Now, he's tried all kinds of different things. And he bears the scars of some of these experiments that he tried. But the truth is, is that he over and over and over again tries to find life in things that don't give life. Tries to fill his life up with things that will satisfy him. And he ends up really on a dead-end street. I think one of the best ways I can describe this is let's just say Joe finally hears the gospel. He finally responds to the claims the good news that Jesus has given. And his life, according to the Scripture, tells he's a brand new creature. He has a brand new master. He has the ability now to soar. But the truth is, he has 50 years of habits. 50 years of living life apart from a gracious God. It's kind of like buying a house. Now, not all of you have done this, but I can guarantee this, is that whenever you have the opportunity to buy a house, 
You look at houses different ways. If you have the ability to be a visionary, you can look at a house and see all the things, what it's going to look like maybe in 10 years. If you're a little bit more of a realistic, you look at this house and say, it's a piece of junk. What are you thinking? Why would we buy this thing? Well, the other spouse, whoever it is, oh, honey, it'll be beautiful. Oh, the carpet will be this, and the walls will look like this, and the yard will look like... And you go like, man, are you on drugs? <laughs> I'm not seeing this, you know? Well, there was a different master. Probably wasn't the right choice of words there, just so you know. I don't know how that came out, but are you hallucinating? It's better, all right? And what happens is this. The old owner had different desires, had different ways to look at life, and it reflected him or her. But when a new owner comes in, eventually... You have the papers, you have the authority, and if you have the money, you begin to make the changes of the skills. That's what God does to every one of us. You're a new creation, you have a new owner, but there are times, whoa, for a long time, that backyard has lots of weeds. I'm not sure when that is going to get cleaned up, but you walk with God, you listen to God, you allow God to change you from the inside. And this is the good news, is that all of a sudden this new master gives you new freedom, new ability, new strength, new perspective. And you see life differently. There is great freedom for those who joyously submit to their Lord and their King's words. You see, Jesus Christ came into this world to rescue, to liberate, and to give freedom. And one time, it's found in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He went back to his hometown in Nazareth. And as he went back to his own hometown and he went into the synagogue, he read a scripture that actually is found in Isaiah chapter 61. But I'm going to read the text out of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus read this. The Spirit of God is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, and the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor is here. And I'm letting you know, I believe that Jesus did all those things physically. But more than that, I think Jesus came to the spiritually blind, the spiritually lame, those that again did not experience life. And by him coming and loving and dying and resurrecting himself, he proclaimed God's favor. You see, those who are set free in Christ must heed Paul's admonition In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. When Paul wrote this, So Christ has truly set us free. Make sure that you stay free. Don't get tied up in slavery again. And then the very last thing. In fact, the words that seemed to haunt me more this week as I was preparing, more than anything else, I thought this was unbelievable advice for disciples. This is important. You've given us a pathway. But I'll tell you, the words that didn't go away, that haunted me, are found in verse 59. And the words were this, and left the temple. And left the temple. He left the spiritually unresponsive, the hard-hearted, the unbelievers, and the religious. You know, I had to think through. There are times when I'm hard-hearted. When I think I'm pleasing God or I think my way is best, And Jesus finally said, I'm done. I left. Wow. As we look at this last scenario in chapter 8 of what Jesus went through, 
I have to ask the question, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? In light of him walking out of the temple, pouring his heart out for two chapters, using every metaphor he possibly could use, I'm going to satisfy your thirst. I'm going to light up your path. Would you receive my free and gracious offer? I think, again, if Jesus were here, it would be the same thing. There's a time, I think, in every unbeliever's life that Jesus draws a line in the sand. He says, I've tried. I've shared. And they do not respond. It hit me. It hit me at a pastor. And it hit me the people that I hang out with at times. God loves you, but you can refuse. I hope there's no one here that does. But my second question is this, and it's a little bit harder. Are you religious or a disciple? I think you're going to fit in one of those categories. The religious, they love to fight. They're blind. I think the call to you is to repent. Is to repent. And if you're a disciple, if that's the title you want, is that the tattoo you want across your forehead, then I'm just going to say it. You need to be saturated with God's Word. You do. I don't understand someone who says they love Jesus with all their heart and want to follow Him and want to listen to Him and want to make a kingdom impact. Why God's Word is such a casual experience for them. Honestly, I... I don't know why every time God's word is given out that we have to turn people away. I loved having all the folks here at Easter. But I would love to have two or three or four services here. Feeding and encouraging and strengthening the believers to go out and be salt and light. I wonder why high school students casually look at a Sunday night and say, whoa, I wonder if I want to go. I, I wonder every Wednesday when we have leaders here who encourage people to memorize, why parents give kids options if they're God-fearing parents. I know there are certain occasions. I get it. I know there are certain scenarios, but, but i got to tell you, not only as a youth pastor, but as a pastor. Some of you know I give you a call. Rick, we've been busy. Yeah, I, I, I know. But I think you're missing out. It's not just about Sundays. It's not just about this or that. It's our Bible studies. I mean, it's so cool watching our men and women come together and open up God's Word. But truthfully, there's really not a lot of numbers. And yet I hear, and if we would take the survey. I'm a disciple. I am a disciple. Well, you know what Jesus said to all the new believers? If you're going to be a disciple, you want to be a follower? I'm just like, you know, I don't care what else is. You need to be saturated with my word. And maybe the message one week after Easter is that I need to be saturated by God's word. Because that's life-giving, and that's life-changing, and that allows us to bear fruit. You know, folks, my goal, and you know this, I'm 
not trying to hit you over the head with a bat. I'm just really sharing what Jesus said at the end of his ministry. And he was begging people, do you understand what I want to give you? And then when you read, you obey. We're going to be starting some different groups, and we're telling you just a little bit about that. But one of the groups when I lead is called the Spur Group, and one of the questions we ask every week to guys as they read their Scripture, what part of the Scripture are you not obeying? It's just a question that comes out every week. Because we think we obey all the time. I think we need to keep asking, as you read God's Word, and God is prompting you, and God is encouraging you, maybe in the area of generosity, maybe in the area of service, maybe in the, I don't know. But I guess I just want to say this. If God is saying something to you, and to me, or maybe to our church, we need to say yes. And let Him figure out the details. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do. We thank you so much that you gave us a pathway 2,000 years ago. Lord, would your word become more of our lives? Would you teach us? Perhaps it's radio. Maybe it's podcasts. Maybe it's written books and studies. But God, would, would this word just be so much a part of the folks here at Crosspoint? Would they be saturated so when their sponge gets tossed out into the congregation that everybody gets wet? Because your word is just leaking. Lord, it's powerful. God, give us grace to understand that some of our priorities are not such good priorities. We love you. We do. Thanks for being patient. In Jesus' name, amen.